Welcome to episode 307 of I Am Talk, your weekly fix in all things Iron Man. So 307 of I Am Talk with Coach John Newsom and Bevan James Iles. How you going, mate? I'm very good, Bevan. How are you? Oh, mate, it just feels like yesterday. The, the whole week's just gone pale and blur. Just seamless. Comes together seamlessly. If you don't know, that's the little secret we just tell you guys. But what happens is we've actually recording straight after last week's show. Yes. Keep that a secret. Don't tell anyone. <laughs> anyway, I Am Talk is proudly brought to you by... Coffeesofwire.com. And I've got another coffee fact for you today. Great. I'm going to have to find it as we're doing the show. Yep. Yep. Athlinks.com. Um, Athlinks.com. Um, claim your results. Tell the world how great you are. And don't tell them when you're not. And Extreme Endurance. Extreme Endurance. Get your lactic buffer to help you get recovery better and race faster. Okay, John, in this week's show, we are, we've, there's a lot happening because there's been so much racing happening over the weekend. <laughs> We're going to be having our predictions of the week. We're going to be having... Which is kind of funny, really, because people are giving us a hard time about being our facts. This week, we're totally guessing, aren't we? Yes. Mm. We got uh, what do we got? We got news. We got a workout of the month with Alan Cousins. Yes. In endurance corner, which we recorded last week, and we've got an age group of the week, and then we've got an interview with Paul Newsom with an E. He was destined for great things until his parents put an E on the end of his name. Uh, from Swim Smooth. Now, we've we've had so many people over the years ask to get Paul on the show, and we've kind of emailed back and forth, so it's finally we've finally got him on the show, which is great. And we've got a great interview, of probably best interview we've ever done, John. Oh, it's outstanding. Yeah. We haven't actually done it yet. Yeah, but done it tonight. And we've got nicknames. So for the people who have donated, we've got nicknames at the end. First of all, news, Ironman South Africa is coming up. Is it this weekend? Yes, it is this weekend wow, coming nice. up. Yep. And three laps, we've got two lap swim, three two lap, lap bike, swim, ocean three swim. lap run. Yep, three lap run, three lap bike. That's got a course congestion. It's got to, unless it's, uh, I think they have a reasonable size field there. So Keep you, always, you always see that, um, you know, say we had Ironman Melbourne, uh, that was either two or three laps, and you certainly see it's starting to get a bit of congestion. Especially, yeah. And it's a little bit, um, it's, it's hard for, sometimes, uh, yeah, for the pros, you know, when you're riding through at 40k an hour and you're passing people that are going, you know, low twenties. Um, you got to be pretty onto it. Well, it's also you're going into the big peak of the field, so the the road is pretty much taken up mm. the whole way across. Mm. So passing people is a bit of a pain in the butt. Yeah, but still, it looks like a nice uh, a nice course from from what the website shows. What's interesting about this race is a two thousand point race. Um, so that's uh, it's second, more than a one thousand point race. Really, it? yeah. But yeah, it's but the, the interesting thing with with a lot of these races is they can really decide what prize money they get they set um so at a 2000 point race say ironman new zealand there was fifty thousand u.s prize money oh so they can determine their own prize I think money there's ranges i think there's a minimum you have to meet yep and but you can have as much as you like okay so, so new zealand they had fifty thousand, whereas south africa they got seventy five thousand. and the new ironman kens which was challenge kens they had a hundred thousand euro there so they you know you can put as much prize money on as you like but mm. there's a minimum standard so seventy five thousand is is getting up there in terms of what races are able to offer i guess with being in south africa you've got to offer a bit more because people have got to make the trip over there because no other than the locals nobody really lives that locally last year sorry you raced yeah i've raced south africa but it was at a different venue to this um i couldn't even tell you i think it was like 16th or something i thought Mm -hmm. it was gonna be a cherry pick and then i I realized that the runs um a little bit hard and also realized the bike was a little longer but you were winning it weren't you i was winning it and And, uh this is easy name was in lights i was like oh this is fun and then they say did you really think i'm gonna win this no no but but i just thought it was a little bit who was in the field 
uh, Lothar Leader, Spencer Smith. Um, oh, you, you, you probably think I'll take him out. Yeah. So yes. Amazing when we interviewed Spencer Smith, he didn't go. Oh, I remember that John. I thought he. Mm. I thought he was going to be the next big thing. Yeah. Anyway, uh, last year, last year though, it was new record set. Reynard Tissink won an 8.05.37, which was quite a significant drop in the, the course time, so I do wonder if they changed it slightly, but still outstanding performance. 8.05 is, is but, awesome. But what's phenomenal, so Chrissy got the, the Ironman world record, yeah. <laughs> not the, the long distance, but she got that, what's, what's her road? It's a one eight eight nineteen eight nineteen. 8.19. 8.19. So she had 8.33 in South Africa last year. It was pretty close to Reynard. Yeah, because Reynard's one of the top dudes. Yeah, I mean he he was uh, he was in he was fifth maybe in yeah. Kona last year. He's had he's had a number. Of, he's, he's quite consistently in the top ten in Kona. And when we talked to him after Kona last year, he was he didn't have the most amazing race yet. He still had it. Yeah, you know, he's a solid top tenner, and she's only eighteen minutes behind him. Yeah, no I wonder where she finished. I didn't check where she finished overall, but I would say she finished pretty highly. Yeah, that's, that's eight thirty three. Fast. It's more than eighteen, isn't it? Twenty eight minutes. It's nearly 20 minutes. No, it's 18 minutes. Is it? Okay. You sure? No. It's, it's 23 minutes. It's 28 minutes. <laughs> 28 minutes. Yeah. We've, been still, sitting, we've been sitting still. in the studios too long. It's still close. It's going to be another great show. Okay, so who else is racing? Who should we be looking out for? So uh, the guys that I've sort of identified that we could be looking out for, Mike Aragos. Uh, nice. He's from Switzerland, and he had some, I think he had, he had an amazing race in Kona or an amazing race in the 70.3 champs. We're going to check. Um, then we had... Alon, uh, Clement Alonzo McKenna and I remember him I think being the first maybe the first age grouper in Kona a few years ago Andy Boucherier he's from Germany and he either is or was on the Abu Dhabi team and he was leading Kona for quite some time last year and he also I think did uh, did very well at some other race James Kanana will be a local hope and from South Africa and Marcus Farkbar um, from Germany is also in there on the girls side of things Natasha Badman's still out there um, knocking about and but I think the race favourite certainly Virginia Bristotegi she got third in Kona the year before last yeah, so she wasn't last year the year before the first year it was when we were there yeah yeah, yeah. Um, so girl. but the the shame is Jodie Swallow's pulled out apparently I'm not sure if she's injured or what the deal is there but she was down on the start list and I've got to give Ironman South Africa a bit of love here because I go on and on about not having a good start list and promoting your pros but boom go into the website start list the pros they're at the top and it's easily identifiable and so well done to you guys South Africa and my, my, my dark horse I'm going to put, put, put a couple of names out here for dark horses the, the, the Russians are often hard ass oh, athletes yep. so I'm going to go with Andrei Latsinskivki um, is, is having an outstanding performance and get, do, doing very, very well. And you always got to watch out for the Germans. So let's pick another German. Joseph Spindler. I think he's going to have an awesome race as well. And Pete okay. Vibrusic, glove man, is racing. The big I, man. I'm just trying to find a coffee fact. Okay, that's good. Glove man's racing. He always does well, doesn't he? And last weekend... We, we had, had Sydney and Mecca won. It was out of nowhere. Yeah. Who would have thought... We've been writing him off, and then he, he, in his post-race interview, he actually said, I've been holding back the whole time because yep. I knew this Sydney was the key race. It's the World Triathlon yep. Series first round. and yep. Managed to win it. Yeah, he, he said, I've just been listening to those boys, watching their results and, and not watching the races on I Am Talk, and I'm yep. going to go prove them wrong. I've been swimming like a... He said, <laughs> after John Newsom wrote me off in Kona a couple of years ago, I wanted to prove him wrong again yes. in, in Sydney. So Sydney was on at the weekend, and Sydney. my predictions were, because we're pre-recording this, is that Andrea Hewitt and Laurent Vidal, the couple, um, that they are, they've taken out the men's and women's race. Thoughts? 
That's a realistic How'd prediction. How'd you win it? Uh, she tripped up someone on the way. Yeah. No, the women's race, it was a war of attrition. Did the they, women's race have all the top girls there? Yep. yep. So men's didn't, yep. but women's did. It, the men's got, other than the Brownleys and Gomez, well, who, they, are. they are the top, but it's still very, very strong. So the girls side of things, what happened in the girls race was that uh, there was a reasonable side front brunch, not the whole field, but a reasonable size. We're talking probably 20, 25. <laughs> and then they come off the bike and it yep. just became a, 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 a war of attrition. And So um, how many were in the pack at first? Well, there's probably only really about five or six yep. together. It just kind of slowly fading one away. One person probably took a burner off the front and then they exploded. Um, we'll say, um, no, I'm not going to say that name. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> because, long story. Uh, so somebody took a burner off the front <laughs> and then uh, then the group of four or five just ran shoulder to shoulder and then with 2K to go, Andrea Hewitt put the put the pedal down and she dropped them all and she won a small victory, a small distance of victory. Wow, how much and did Ron she win? Vidal took it in a sprint finish. Over Mecca? Yeah, Macca, Macca sorry, yeah, no, the Ron was second. Then Macca got disqualified for only doing um, seven laps when it was supposed to be eight on the bike. Uh, so that's why you won. <laughs> so you're calling Macca a cheat now as well, John. <laughs> so he's not going to get the end. Macca, I have nothing to do with this. Uh, I said you won. Okay, let's just remember this. Okay, when we come to Kona on interview, just say, yep, Bevan only. John can't be here. There you go. Sponsor. Mother's Day is coming up, Bevan. And so if you want to get yourself the Mother's Day roast, Coffees of Hawaii have got a special Mother's Day roast, our latest limited edition roast. Sweet um, sweet beans from the big island of Kona blended with spicy beans from Molokai and Maui. Sweetness with a subtle spice just like mom or mum. I was trying to find a coffee fact, John, and I haven't really found one. Oh, my goodness. Well, you know, but I, I was actually, I was reading an article today, today about this cafe, these, these, these professional couples who started a cafe thinking, you know, this is the life. It yeah, <laughs> yeah. to be a total luck. disaster. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I was saying that what's really interesting is that with cafe, food-wise, people are a bit stingy. So, if you, you know, you know, $8 or, you know, anything over $4 for a muffin, people feel mm. they're being ripped off. And the margin on a muffin is only about a dollar. Mm. Whereas mm. coffee... Big margins. Yeah, yeah. So here's my coffee fact. Mm. Based on this article I read today... Mm. A coffee, at like a, just a basic coffee, 18 cents for the coffee. And they charge out about you, three bucks for that. You're just talking product, though, there, 18 cents the coffee. for the beans. Yeah. In the, yeah. It cost them 80 cents, 18 cents to make the coffee, yeah. they said. Obviously, you've got your, your overheads on top of that. But, yeah, 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 but, yeah. but that's where, you know, there's high to, yeah. So what we're saying, John, is don't, don't spend three bucks on a coffee. We now need to make it, only cost them 18 cents. Do DIY. DIY, John. Get yourself some coffee. Get yourself some coffee. Belinda's very good with that. We've, we've now got a proper professional kick-ass um, coffee machine at home. And it's saving us a fortune. It really is. It really is. It's great. So get well, one thing I'm noticing is that my daughters and her friends are starting to drink coffee now. Mm. 15, you know. Mm. They think they're all sophisticated. Nice. Yeah. So if you want to get your own coffee, go to coffeesofhawaii.com. And if you want to get the Mother's Day roast for mummy, get it. Well, I'm on this website right now, John, who's selling a coffee business startup report. And it costs you 50 bucks. Okay. I'm not going to be on that. No, no need. Um, okay, uh, next up, John, what have we got? Workout of the Month, brought to you by trainingpeaks.com and, and endurancecorner.com. Um, so we're going to talk to Alan Cousins about some different testing and a couple of things that he brings up uh, is the WKO software. So just to avoid any confusion, Training Peaks and WKO software are basically the same company. What happens with WKO software, it's a very good tool for analysing all your your training and mo- many of the features in WKO are also found on Training Peaks. Yeah, so online. if you put your Powerfile in your, in your training diary, you can read it. 
It yeah. does give you some, some of the information. Plenty of information, but there is more in the WKO software. The other difference is when you've got WKO, it's sitting on your on your computer, yeah. um, so you don't have to go online and, and be able to access it online at all stages. So if you want to get on trainingpeaks.com, you can use uh, the stuff Alan talks about in terms of your, you know, your test sessions. You can analyze them in a bit more detail. You know, When you, you look at your watch and you get your average heart rate for that session, it might be 155, for example. When you actually then go on to Training Peaks or use a WKO software, you can actually see the trends of what's happened because the average might be, it might have started at 140, but as you go through the ride, it might have drifted up to 155 or whatever, so you can use these tools to analyze what you're doing. So here comes... Mr. Alan Cousins. Here we go. Over the uh, last however many years, we've talked about different forms of testing you can years. do, you know, in terms of power and, um, and, and, uh, and other forms of testing to try to establish your, um, you know, your zones for, for training and, and more specifically for racing. And, and often, well, you know, the, the, the method that um, has often been prescribed is to go out and do, you know, your, your time trial and, you know, maybe your 20 minute or 25 minute or 16k time trial and then you know estimate your FTP based off that and then you can set your zones off that but there's, there's different ways of um, you know of, of setting your zones and some people are better at doing you know time trials than others and they may um, excel when they go and do Ironman so we're going to talk today with uh, Alan Cousins from endurancecorner.com just around some potentially some other methods you might be able to use to, to work out what is the the optimal pacing for for iron distance racing so welcome along to the show Alan. Thank you. Thank you for having me again, guys. So it's Alan, you're you know, exercise physiologist, so you know you do this uh, day in day out. I mean, do you, these days you're doing um, quite a bit of lab testing still or do you, you know, do you get out and do a lot more field testing now that we've got the use of power meters a lot more readily available to people? Yeah, I mean, you know, I think definitely as a as a coach of a lot of remote athletes, um, you know, ideal I guess the majority of the time with uh, with field data, um, you know, I think it's been interesting kind of coming at it from from both sides of the spectrum. You know, coming from a, a guy who did a a lot of a lot of lab testing, uh, you know, a couple of years back with you know all kinds of athletes, and and now nowadays that I'm looking more and more at field data, I'm able to sort of see how the two relate. You know, so. Um, I think I think some tests relate really well with what I see in the field, and uh, and some you know there's a there's a wide range of uh, you know of response from from different types of athletes. So it's it's definitely good to to put the two together, um, you know. And I think that's kind of what what you were alluding to in the intro um, is that you know short duration tests can say one thing, and they can be a good starting point for folks in terms of uh, you know maybe getting a feel for what their Ironman performance is going to be. But there's a really wide range in what percentage of those short tests different athletes are going to race at, you know, and, and that's, that's an important piece of the puzzle that, uh, you know, I think field, field testing can, can really fill in for us. And does that vary quite a bit? Um, you know, you say it varies from athlete to athlete, but does it vary, you know, in terms of percentages of, of FTP and stuff for the, say, a slower athlete versus a faster athlete, or is it just the makeup of that particular person and speed doesn't necessarily come into it so much? Yeah, I definitely think that, you know, the, the better trained the athlete, the higher the percentage of FTP they're going to typically hold for, uh, for an Ironman duration. So, you know, training is 
is a big factor. Uh, but but like you said, you know, there's there's other factors that come into play too. You know, you can get guys who are just just naturally uh, they're really strong on the endurance side of the curve. You know, they they can they can uh, not be training for extended periods of time and come back, and that's just kind of their go-to. You know, they they don't lose that they don't lose that side of the curve quite as much as as others. You know, so it's. Uh, it's it's something that you really only find out by by testing different durations and looking at you know how how their power fades off as as the duration lengthens and uh, you know that's that's an important important kind of series of tests I guess for uh, for someone who wants to you know get get a good idea of what they should be racing the Ironman at with respect to to pace and power. What what about for females? Because we we know that in a lot of circumstances females can tolerate more training harder training you know that's that's a, a gross generalization but we know that that, that that is can often be true when you're setting zones for males versus females do you use the same criteria no i mean uh you know i i agree with you 100 percent. I, I think females and, and older athletes as well you know they as a as a pretty pretty good general rule they're able to hold a higher percentage of uh of ftp or you know a higher percentage of their short numbers for those longer duration efforts so you know it's definitely when we're setting sort of uh simulation workouts or you know kind of uh mini mini ironman uh workouts um i would definitely be be looking to to higher percentages as a general rule for females than what I would be for uh, for, for male athletes. You know, particularly strong, big FTP male athletes. You know, they uh, there can be quite a difference there in the percentage that they're holding over an Ironman. Okay, so in the in the intro, I was sort of saying, you know, often people go off their 20, 25 minute, um, you know, time trial test and, and and estimate off there. Can you sort of run through some of the other forms of testing that that, that you do in terms of field based stuff, um, and and how you use that to establish zones? Sure, sure, yeah. I, one one of the big. Uh I guess methods of uh, of identifying uh, target target paces and target power outputs that I that I like to use is identifying what I, what I call the fatigue curve of the athlete. So what I mean by that is uh, if if we know how the athlete performs over different durations, if we know what their twenty minute power is versus their forty minute power and their eighty minute power, and you know so on and so forth. We can start to identify the trends of how much the how much power the athlete loses as the duration increases, and it's a fairly uh, fairly consistent trend. So if you know if we test 20 minutes and then we test 40 minutes and we see that the athlete drops by say 10% power um, for that jump. We would also expect that if we lengthen that from 40 minutes to 80 minutes, we'd see another 10% drop. And so, you know, if we went 80 to 160 minutes, we'd see another 10% drop. So it's a, it's a fairly, fairly consistent sort of curve. So once we know, once we know what that drop-off rate is for a given athlete, then we can start to much better prescribe um, longer duration efforts. You know, and obviously, uh, when we start looking at kind of simulation workouts for Ironman. They're about as long as a training effort gets, uh, so you know that that would be, I guess, the big difference versus just using an arbitrary percentage of FTP. 
I think it's important to to really tailor it to that athlete and to identify what a an appropriate percentage might be for that athlete by the time we extend that out to you know eight hours, ten hours, twelve hours, whatever it might be. So you're saying there, so you, you do a twenty minute test. Would you then go out and do a forty minute test, and would you do an eighty minute test, and would that forty minute test still be a, a sort of a, a maximal test? Yeah, there. I mean, you you you're hitting on a good point here, and that is that you know the athlete only has so many sort of maximal uh, mm. maximal efforts in their uh, in their legs over the course of a course of a training season. So. There's four durations that I tend to sort of focus around, and they are the the five minute, the twenty minute, the two and a half hour, and the five hour. And the reason I select those is because they each represent a different sort of physiological quality that uh, that I'm sort of looking to assess within the athlete. So um, you know, the five and the twenty minute efforts, obviously, uh, you know, they're, they're not as taxing, and they're the sort of things that we can do three, four, five times within a season. Uh, the two and a half and the five are, you know, more special uh, special events for uh, for the athletes. You know, things that uh, data that that I sort of look forward to seeing, but maybe the athlete doesn't uh, <laughs> doesn't look forward to providing me with. Uh, but you know, I, I I think it really is telling. And usually, I'll save those for sort of a bike camp or you know that kind of that kind of situation where they might have a few friends around them to. Uh, to push them to a good yeah. solid effort. So, but that two and a half hour and five hour effort is basically as hard as you can sustain for that. And, and do you set them some some zones for that, or do they just go right? I go out and ride two and a half hours as hard as I can. Yeah. So I'll you know I'll know from looking at some of the short efforts like the five and the twenty. If you know if that curve holds, what do I expect them to be able to do for the two and a half? So I'll I'll definitely put that number in their heads as uh, you know something to shoot for, and then uh, you know we we sort of uh, see how it pans out, and uh, we might adjust the fatigue curve from there. But you know usually usually it holds pretty well. You know for a well conditioned athlete, for someone who's already done the base and is already sort of into their specific prep training, uh, you know doing a big bike camp. Um, if by the time they're at that sort of fitness, then usually that that drop off rate sort of holds uh, holds pretty well, and the numbers that we predict uh, are pretty close to what actually happens. How do you find they mentally sustain it? Because you know, like twenty minute all out efforts are kind of a beast in itself, and so is the five. But if you're going for five hours, and as much as you may be an experienced endurance athlete, you know, most of us don't really push hard for five hours on our long rides. How do you find most athletes are sustaining that for their whole time? Yeah, the the pacing's definitely important, you know. And if if uh, for whatever reason the end number doesn't work out to to what I'd predicted, you know, that's definitely the first thing that that I look at. I think with uh, you know with technology progressing the way it is and the way that you're able to sort of see real time normalized power, um, you know, on the on the screen, you can set your jewel up and you can say, okay, my target for this is you know 250 watts or whatever the case may be. So you're able to pace it much better by just keeping a, you know, keeping a real-time rolling normalized power going for uh, for that effort. So I think I think that helps a lot. You know, sometimes I'll, depending on the athlete, we can break it up with a little bit of structure. You know, 10% above above target pace, 10% below, and just kind of uh, you know throw some main sets in there. But um, 
yeah, don't get me wrong. It's uh, you know, it's it's always there's always a mental component to putting together a a, a good solid five hour effort, you know, and yeah, uh, totally. Yeah, it's uh, it's a like I said, a special uh, special event, but it, you know, five hours, uh, five hour max effort on the bike. You know, I think physiologically, it it doesn't tear you up as much as even a, a half Ironman, you know, because you don't have that sort of eccentric load of, uh, of the running to, to contend with. So it's, it's psychologically pretty hard, but physiologically maybe a little bit more gentle than some other, uh, other common benchmarks. Well, and I, I suppose the thing is when people hear a five hour TT is, is they think it's going to be like a 20 minute where it's, it's a totally different beast, isn't it? For sure. I mean, you know, it, uh, the first, first hour and a half, two hours is going to feel pretty, pretty easy. Yeah. You know, so that, definitely not pushing that the whole time that's for sure so obviously we've discussed a lot here around the, the athletes that have got power as as a, a means to um to control their, their their bike ride which we all know is is the best pacing tool you've got but a lot of people don't have it available to them so they have to rely on heart rate have you sort of got any tips around um that and we had somebody sent a uh, a question in that he uses heart rate as, as a, a guide during the bike league of an ironman race but how to factor in um you know heart rate drift as you go through the ride so have you got any sort of tips for for athletes that use heart rate yeah, I think you can you can apply a similar sort of principle. You know, if you uh, if you have some some shorter duration tests, you can look look at what heart rate you can typically hold, maybe for you know an hour time trial, and then what heart rate you might hold for a, a really strong two and a half hour or, or longer effort, and you can sort of predict a little bit further along the curve as to what that translates to for uh, for Ironman. So. I, that's something that I do with, uh, you know, with with the guys that I coach. Is on on WKO, you can set up an actual mean max heart rate curve where you can see kind of, you know, what their uh, what their average heart rate is for different duration efforts. And that's something that I've found to be really uh, really useful. You know, not just for those athletes who don't maybe have power and pace, but also for those athletes who do, just so they can. They can, you know, get an idea of what heart rate we might also be looking at, because as you guys know, you know, different different environmental conditions, we might want to actually change the pace and power plan uh, from from what we had initially uh, initially went for, sort of thing. So I think it's it's good good to have a sense of both for sure. And when you do these tests, are there any other sort of um key sessions obviously you discussed a couple of test sessions there you know your five your 20 your two and a half and your five have you got any um other sort of key sessions that you often like athletes to do just to reassess so it's not necessarily a maximal test or, or and where they might actually run off the bike and see how comfortable they are you know in terms of whether it's a building ride or anything like that yeah for sure i mean i i think uh you know the 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 five the 20 the two and a half the five are all sort of a progression that lead us towards the the sessions that are going to be as close close to the race as possible. So, you know, whatever that that race might be, um, you know, if if it was an Olympic distance, then obviously, uh, you know, the the sequencing of those five two and a half twenty five might be a little bit different. But but for Ironman, what I'm what I'm looking at is eventually building to the point that we're doing maybe three to five. Um, efforts that are 
the longest duration test that, that we do. And for my guys, you know, typically they're in the seven to eight hour range uh, as, as a workout day. So, you know, we're, we're talking about really the hardest, the hardest sessions that they're going to do during their build. And, um, you know, those are not bike only. So one of my favorite uh, structures, I guess, for that, for that type of workout is to do a metric Ironman. So they'll do a, uh, what I mean by that is, you know, the, the typical mileage distances for an Ironman are 2.4 miles, 112 miles, 26 miles. So instead of doing those as mileage, uh, mileage efforts, they'll do them as kilometer efforts. So 2.4K swim, 112K bike. 26k run um you know and that's that's one of my uh kind of favorite reality checks for for the guys who are just about to race an ironman as to what their uh what their race pace and power targets might be and uh you know i've found that to be a really really consistent uh predictor of of uh of what their potential is for the ironman it's uh you know some uh some folks kind of want to go want to go short or want to go longer but that that two-thirds has has a really good uh kind of physiological rationale behind it in that uh, typical training efforts you know if we look at sort of uh look at studies on muscle glycogen and that sort of thing when we're training we're never really at a hundred percent energy reserves you know we're typically at about that two-thirds 70 percent energy reserves from day to day so it doesn't make sense to do do a longer effort than that. You know that uh, that kind of two thirds effort is is a good proxy for what you should be able to do when you're tapered up and uh, and ready to race. And so that would be done at Ironman pace. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. So we'd look at you know those fatigue curves and we'd look at what what that might extrapolate to over an Ironman effort, and then we'd set those as the target. And uh, and kind of try and try and assess uh, you know how how that worked out and obviously with bringing in the run and the swim we now have the opportunity to try some different kind of variations around that so while the output you know if, if we decide that uh, you know based on those curves that we're thinking the athlete might hold 140 beats a minute maybe we want to try and devote a little less of that to the bike and a little more of that to the run. So if, you know, if we've got three, three, four, five of those sort of workouts to play around with, we can, uh, we can do some different things with each of them and see which one, uh, you know, least the best performance for that athlete. How, how close to an Ironman would you want to be doing those? Because, you know, I imagine if you're getting too close in, there's a kind of a risk factor that comes to the race day. So, you know, how often in your season would you look to do those kind of three to five kind of stimulations? Yeah, I mean, definitely, you know, we, we, we don't want to be doing those uh, as we're tapering the athlete down. You know, typically for, for my guys, I'm, I'm doing a two or three week taper depending on the athlete. So, um, you know, the basically three to eight weeks out from the key race would be when I'd, I'd be doing uh, those sort of workouts, you know, and um, obviously it sort of depends a little bit on how fit that athlete is as to how close we we want to do them to towards the race you know it uh if someone is still working on getting fit then i i don't want to do a workout like that and you know have them perform way below what we might expect them to to perform so i'd spend the extra couple of weeks building that fitness rather than uh rather than testing that fitness you know so i think 
it's really important to sort of psychologically assess, uh, you know, what it, what it would do to that particular athlete if they had a, a strong performance versus a weaker than expected performance as well. So I'm sort of thinking along those lines as well. And I guess the key thing is for that, I mean, as, as, as well as uh, testing, you know, pacing goals and, and, and zones and what have you is uh, assessing nutritional requirements because uh, that's sort of a real-world training session and, uh, and you can have the, all the perfectly set zones and be exactly what you should be able to sustain, but if you can't get nutrition right, then uh, it doesn't really matter too much by the time you get to the run. So those, I totally agree. I, I include those stimulation-type sessions um, fairly regularly through the build-up and, as you said, you have different focuses at different times, but they're just a, a perfect opportunity to practice your race nutrition. I think that's a great point too, John. You know, what what you can do for five or six hours, you know, what you can put up with is totally different to, to what you can put up with over eight, nine, ten hours. You know, mm. and you get you get guys doing a five hour long bike and, you know, maybe finishing kind of coasting in on fumes but still at a strong enough effort, you know, and they, they don't necessarily get the get the lesson from from that workout. Had they extended it to six or seven you know, it would be an entirely different workout by that last hour. So you've talked a lot about biking there, but um, obviously with run testing, you know, it's it takes a it's a bigger toll on the body, and and your run pace is subject to to to, to a degree to how what your bike fitness is like. So what sort of testing do you use around um, the running side of things in terms of setting zones and setting what is a realistic target for their Ironman run? Yeah, that, that's a good question, you know, and, and it, I think it's important to look at the running context. You know, most folks are for their long run are maybe going to do two and a half hours, you know, and it, it's you hear a lot of folks saying, well, you know, I held eight minute miles for my two and a half hour run. So, you know, that's that's going to be my, my goal pace for the Ironman, you know, and it's com- two and a half hours is completely different from nine and ten hours. So, you know, I I think it's always a little bit uh, a little bit dangerous to to start setting run goals off of run workouts. You know, much it's much safer to look at what pace you're running at the end of those long bricks as a uh, you know as as a target pace for the Ironman. So in a similar way, you know, rather than uh, rather than looking at two and a half hours as, as the proxy for the Ironman. I look at how their pace drops off over different efforts, and instead of extending that out to two and a half hours, extending it out to ten hours. You know what? What does their drop off from a five k, ten k half marathon effort imply if we stretch that out to, you know, to a ten hour effort? What What does it mean? So I think that's a that's a better way of looking at it rather than looking at it as you know, forgetting about the, the five hours of racing or six hours of racing that's come before that and just, just looking at it as a standalone run because it's obviously very different. And so is that curve again quite, you, you talked about the, the drop-off in the bike being relatively linear. Is that, is that the similar case that you find with the running, you know, the fresh performance versus fatigue performance, the drop-off is fairly linear? Yeah, it, it is, surprisingly so. You know, I mean... Uh, Especially on the run, considering it's something we don't test. You know, we don't test those 
five hour, you know, seven hour efforts on on the run. You know, most <laughs> go, of the go for a five hour run time trial. <laughs> I bet you'd have a lot of uh, athletes on your books if you did that. <laughs> no, you, you, I mean you get the. I mean you fall into the crazy category when you start wanting to do the ultras as uh, as sort of you know test runs to prepare for your uh, <laughs> for your Ironman. But yeah, most folks they, they don't really want a piece of that. But yeah, even without those, you know, if, if we look at how it sort of typically drops off from 5K, 10K, half, or, you know, even to, to a full marathon, um, it, it tends, to, tends to work its way down to that 10-hour number pretty, pretty well, um, you know, and then obviously we have, we have the choice of if we want to maybe try and go a little bit harder than what that 10-hour number might, might indicate on the run and a little bit easier on the bike, which is something that, you know, for most guys on most courses, I think tends to work out to be a better strategy. Nice. Mm-hmm. I had a couple of um, comments on Facebook about what what different people use for their um, for setting their zones, and also um, one Gavin Duffy had a question. He was asking, and, and I know uh, I'm not sure if nutrition is your area of expertise, but he was asking when you've got your um, uh, you know you've got your your power meter in front of you and it's giving you how much energy you're burning, how much energy burnt how do you calculate how much you should be trying to replace in terms of calories um or fuel going in yeah i mean I, you know the, the power meter can definitely give you uh give you some great information in terms of in terms of what you're burning um unfortunately it's it's not practical to replace all of what you're burning you know if, if you do the math in terms of uh in terms of a long ride you know you might uh you might burn sort of, uh, you know, three thousand kilojoules or something of energy, and if we if we take that as uh, you know over the course of say a, a five hour ride, um, if we if we kind of go the one to one, you know, kilojoules to calories that a lot of a lot of uh, folks suggest, you know, three thousand calories over the course of a five hour ride is going to be going to be pretty hard to uh, hard to get down. So. Yeah. You know, the the stomach becomes the limiter as far as what what you can actually get down uh, d- during that ride. What what I would say is that if we look at it over a day, you know, you your big days, that's a really good uh, that's some really good information as to how much you should take in over the day. You know, you you really want to make sure that uh, if if you're doing you know big day back to back training. That you are replacing those over the course of the 24 hours. It's just maybe not practical to to do so over the course of just that ride, you know. Nice. And hopefully, all the other guys. We, we, the questions up there were, were quite a few general ones that I think we've covered um, more or less in what we've talked to Alan already um, about. Mm-hmm. Have you got any other anything else you'd like to add there, Alan? Or you can tell us a bit about the, um, the camps that are coming up. Yeah, yeah, for sure. We've got uh, we, we've got uh, a couple of. Of camps coming up. The we've got a regular uh, regular Boulder camp coming up in June. So uh, so that's the that's the one where we uh, you know try and give give folks the full experience of Boulder and uh, you know meet with a uh, meet with whoever whatever pro athletes tend to happen to be in town at that time and uh, you know get them get them to come and, and chat with us and stuff and uh, obviously get. Get the full taste of the Boulder scenery, take them up into the mountains and that sort of thing. So you can check out the website endurancecorner.com if you're interested in uh, in some more information on that one. Uh, I don't think we're doing our climbing camp this year, but uh, that one 
is uh, is scheduled, I think, again for next year. We're talking about doing that one, sort of a tour of tour of the Rocky Mountains, which is uh, you know pretty pretty scenic and pretty fun, and lots of lots of climbing if that's uh, if that's what you like to do. <laughs> nice. So if guys want to check out this, as Alan said, you can um, also see all the blog posts that all the contributors on Endurance Corner do. There's over a thousand articles on the site as well, so go check it out at endurancecorner.com. And thanks again for coming on the show this week, Alan. Love your work. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it. Brilliant. Good old Alan. Good old Alan. Good He's stuff. Australian, is he? He's Australian. Australian. Lemon and Boulder. He's got the good Australian accent, eh? Yeah, yeah. Manly Australian accent. I like that. You know, just, hey, mate. Yeah. You know, I like that. Like another good. from the bar, Yeah, mate. Uh, so if you want to get onto trainingpeaks.com, use the code IMTALK, you get 15% off the paid subscriptions. If you're going through just to check out Training Peaks, it'd be really helpful if you can go to imtalk.me first and click on the Training Peaks logo so they can see where you're going. Okay, I'm going to put some music on, John. Here we go. Here's the music. Oh, I love that music, John. There was, there was. What did you say it sounded like? Oh, I thought it sounded like "Who Wants to Be a Millionaire" or something. That's right. Age group of the week sports. Would you, you want to go on "Who Wants to Be a Millionaire"? Well, yeah, I don't. I, don't, I think I'd get past a thousand dollar mark, but uh, progressing on beyond that is uh, my general knowledge is not. Inc- it's, it's okay. It's I am the incredible. current champion, aren't I? Oh, that's right. You are. Yes. Bloody Jetstar better have some decent games for us when we go to Kona. Are we flying Jetstar? Yeah, yeah. I thought we were flying Qantas. We are, but it's coach here, Jetstar. But they won't fly Jetstar to bloody... Yeah, they do. To Hawaii? Yeah. Oh, you didn't tell me that. <laughs> we had no choice. We but will we get slow. food? No. You buy oh. food. No, surely we get food. No. Not we'll at buy all. food. Yeah. Oh, you didn't tell me that. We had no choice. We were too slow with our trigger fingers on Air New Zealand. New oh, but Zealand. I would have paid 100 bucks more to go Air New Zealand. Would you have paid th- three and a half grand for Air New Zealand? No. We basically had to fly business class one way. Well, surely you listeners would have put up with that for us. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> okay, you guys donated a couple grand more. Jetstar. I didn't really, when you said Qantas, I like Qantas, but Jetstar. One way it might be Qantas, one way it might be Jetstar. I'm, I'm trialling it in May, and if, if it's desperately bad, we can cancel and we can... Uh, fly first class we could fly like to UK and then come around the world and go from a different angle that's right that's because I'm going to be in the UK maybe we could do a UK tour yeah oh really Jester yeah just broke my day there John (laughs) I wasn't happy as well I can assure you so Age Group is brought to you by SLS Try John Hancock's good at providing he rocks he's a nice um, person because he's probably the most best bestest ever Age Group supplier yeah so he but he recently supplied an Age Grouper and I um, he's supplied people who who have been on before I apologise I know you put some content together for David Craig but he has been an age group of the week before Bevan and you hear the cat licking the mic it's because it is okay so continuing on my series of night I'll just have to do this Bevan's cuddling the cat I see I'll take a photo of the cat put it on the website okay continuing my series of nice middle aged men with serious jobs happy families and awesome Ironman performances he's even got a series yeah. <laughs> got my series of here is a first timer to put most 10 year veterans in the shade Steve Malsop is pretty well known in New Zealand circles a quick look at Athlinks shows he's no slouch 
His wife, Sue, uh, is also a legend, multiple Ironman New Zealand age group winner, Kona, Kona podiums, and thinking about, I should have done one for her too. Carry on the series, um, John. Yeah. Ooh, feel yeah. free to send one in for her. She is a legend. She's, she dominates, man. She really dominates. Uh, anyway, until last month, Steve had never done an Ironman, but took on Melbourne two weeks ago. His splits are below. Faster swim than Cam Brown or Crowey. Nice. Sub five bike and a sub 330 run which he gr- was grumpy with because his form fell apart. Sub 9.30 in his first ever Ironman at the age of 47. Amazing. Wow. And he's a nice guy. That is smoking, So isn't Steve's it? from Wellington, and he's an IT manager, and he swam 49.47. He biked 4.58.43, and then he ran 3.29.16 for a 9.25.42. And so did that get him to Kona, 7th in his division? Should do. Wow, yeah, 113th overall, 7th in his age group. The only problem when you do a race like Melbourne, your first race, and you get a smoking time like that, it's going to be hard to beat. <laughs> no coming back, because, yeah, it was obviously... A good day. A good, good day. Conditions. Not quite as fast as Roten Austria and stuff, but, but certainly pretty, pretty, pretty fast day at the office. Yeah, love um, your work. So, yeah, there must have been a bit of a, you know, obviously it was a bit uphill on the way out and a bit of tailwind on the way back because his averages on the way out first 45k was 35k an hour then he came back doing 38 then he went out doing 34 and then came back doing 37 yeah it makes a big difference doesn't it but breaking the five hour barrier is nice this basically means you're averaging 36k an hour just over very nice well he, his run splits are interesting he obviously lost it a little bit towards the end of the run 421s for the first 10k second 10k 423 good consistency 13k 750s I'd say this is a slight error because otherwise because then he went down to 333s yeah so I'd say you average that out but he probably still did fall apart a bit there in the second half if you average that out through through those k's but still outstanding performance not too shabby at all still sub 5 minute k's all the way through 457s that's pretty awesome isn't it nice yeah okay Steve Steve Steve, you you are our Age, Age River of the Week. week. Love your work. Okay, that, John. That, that was, was brought to you by SLS Try. Yes, use the code I am Talk for a discount when you go to SLS Try. Um, we've talked about lots of their different products, um, but one we haven't talked about is the FX Short, which is their Try Short. Made in the USA. Always like to support. In the USA. USA. I was made in, in the USA. Did you like Bruce Springsteen when you were younger? Made from very light fabric. <laughs> and I was. Fabric made very light. <laughs> And covered inside pockets <laughs> to reduce the drag. <laughs> and it's got cold back, which means a lot of people still worry these days about the, the black um, being attracting sun, but the cold black um, material reflects sun. And cold black? Yeah. That's yep. cool, eh? And it's got a high That's impact. a bad name. It's bad. Yeah, like cold black. Does that mean bad isn't good? Are you, well, you, you getting funky thing, with me? It can mean anything you want. It's bad. <laughs> Cool black. Um, it's got a very unique design. The girls' one's got a hibiscus flower on the back. Um, good, good, solid pricing, but that pricing becomes even better when you use the code IMTALK and you get a nice healthy discount and there's free shipping if you're in the US. So check it out, slstry.com. You get some cool black too. Okay, John, we've got another interview up because we're basically doing this show last week. So we've got an interview from this week we did last week and it's Paul Newsom. Paul Newsom's from Swim Smooth and... They've got some great, great stuff on their website. So if you want to get some of their stuff, go to swimsmooth.com and I will have a link to it in this week's show notes. But we've got an interview of him around some of the stuff we've been talking around lately with how to use TSS, TSS and all that kind of information for your training and, and just a bit of discussion in general with Paul. So Paul Newsom with an E. With an E. That's why people get confused, John. They do. Yeah, poor us. Anyway, here we go. Here's Paul Newsom. 
Right, the last uh, week or two we've been sort of discussing TSS and how that sort of falls into place around using Training Peaks um, or WKO software and last week we had Hunter Allen on talking about how the, the biking side of work uh, works. He touched very briefly on swimming and also running but we want to get to the bottom of the story in terms of the swimming so we've gone to one of the, the swim experts. We've got Paul Newsom with an E from uh, Swim Smooth on the programme so welcome along Paul. Thanks very much, guys. It's great to be on the show. And let's be honest, so like we've, we've had quite a few recommendations to get Paul on the show over the years, and yeah. we've kind of emailed him here or there, but it's never really happened. So it's it's good to finally have you on, mate. Thanks very much, and I really appreciate giving me a call. It's um, looking forward to having a, a chat through with you guys today and um, hopefully answering some of the queries. So, you know, we, as I said, we talked about um, TSS, which is automatically calculated for you by, by Training Peaks and, and WKO if you've got a, a power meter. Um, you know, obviously, coming to swimming, it's a totally different story. You've got to, you know, you got, you got to figure it out yourself. I don't know if the new Garmin actually starts to do it or not. I'm not quite sure. But um, you know, you've, you've somebody who, who's um, worked a bit on this. So, how does it basically work with swimming? Well, with, with swimming, basically, you're looking also just like with uh, cycling and running to identify a suitable test. Um, Hunter last week spoke about the. Um, or two weeks ago, sorry, talked about the idea of using a 1,000-meter swimming test. Mm. Uh, on their uh, website, on their wiki page, they also talk about um, an idea of actually creating or finding out your critical swim speed or critical swimming velocity. Uh, that's actually calculated using a 400-meter time trial and a 200-meter time trial. Mm. It's quite a nice little test because just like the 20-minute uh, FTP test for cycling, it's a very, very simple way and also arguably an, an easy way to get your athletes to actually do that test on a regular basis rather than a full our um, you know our time trial etc. So basically the 400 meters and the 200 meters the calculation which was created in the early 90s. It's this is not something that we've come up with, but it's something that we utilise on a regular basis. Is um, to do the 400. That's usually a, as a as a very simple representation of the athlete's um, aerobic capacity, um, and the 200 meters looks a little bit more at their anaerobic capacity. So you plug the two of them into a very simple equation. Uh, we got a um, that. Uh, we've got like a, a formula or a table up on uh, swimsmooth.com forward slash training where you can actually put those two values in, have a little uh, mess around with the numbers and sort of see what uh, threshold pace it gives you per 100 metres. And it's a, just a simple uh, starting point for swimmers to know where that threshold point pace is, just like you might know what your FTP is on the bike or you know your threshold pace for for running, um, so it's quite a that's um, that's you know the um, hunter and the guys recommend the thousand meter test and or the the four hundred and two hundred and it's it's just a simple way of actually def- defining that uh, number. I was very lucky in early two thousand and seven to actually fly down to Colorado and actually spend some time with Hunter um, at the uh, USAC Congress, and it was a fantastic opportunity to meet somebody who certainly had quite a bit of an influence in in my coaching um, as a triathlon coach over the uh, over the years. I read his book in two thousand six bought a power meter and just I was just sort of you know wooed over I suppose by the uh, the prospect of actually using this with my own coaching mm. and I could certainly see the benefits of actually utilizing the similar sort of methods in a sort of sim- in a similar sort of uh, simple language that uh, that Hunter and Andy Cogan um, put forward in their uh, in their original book and um, you know just like you can do you can there's much more sophisticated ways of actually testing for threshold pace in the swim the classic is to do seven 200 meters as a uh, sort of step test to get the swimmer to go progressively faster each 200 meters and take blood lactate samples etc but just like Andy Coggan describes in the uh, in the original book you know the the value of actually doing that on a regular basis makes things quite um, 
quite tricky, quite expensive, quite um, involved, if you like, and um, the ability to actually, for a swimmer in this case, to actually just do a, a simple 400-200 test uh, to define that number and follow that over over a period of um, you know a season is a very, very simple way of doing it. So, so when, when you talk about the 200-400 tests there um, and, and the, the number that, that spits out, is that basically an estimate of your 1,000-metre time when you're talking about threshold pace? Yeah, threshold, threshold pace, usually we define it normally as what the swimmer can do for around about 1,500 metres. Now, mm-hmm. um, a very, very well-trained open water swimmer might actually be able to maintain that sort of threshold pace for, th- excuse me, threshold pace for closer to 5,000 metres. Yeah. Which for those guys would be around about you know fifty five fifty six minutes for a five k swim. Um, arguably, some of the best trained uh, Ironman athletes in the world might hold close to that pace for a three point eight k swim. Uh, but for the you know for the average uh, for the average triathlete, it's normally a good representation of what they can do for for around about fifteen hundred meters if they're fully tapered and you know ready to uh, ready to rock and roll. Obviously, we've got to bear in mind the fact that things like um, swimming in the open water, no turns, and um, using a mm. wetsuit, how those sort of things affect. Right. Uh, as swimmers and drafting, etc. Right, you, you know, mm-hmm. draft, we've just been we've just come down from um, from Cottesloe Beach here in beautiful sunny Western Australia, where I've been just doing a, tra- um, a drafting session with some of the elite triathletes, Ironman athletes that I coach over here, and you know, it can really save triathletes a lot of time. Um, I think recent research shows around about thirty eight percent of the economy saving from uh, from drafting effectively. So, this is all all the numbers that we're talking about here are, are literally you or the athlete against the clock, you know, in a pool whether that be a 25-metre, 25-yard uh, or 50-metre, 50 50-yard 50 pool, just trying to define some values that they can actually use on a regular basis to monitor performance over time. So when you've, you've, you've established this, for your own personal coaching, when you've established this threshold number, much like setting bike zones and run zones, do you then often set people the appropriate zones um, for, for times they should be hitting in the pool? Absolutely. You know, I, I mean, certainly a few years ago, we used to have very distinct zones, similar to um, to what uh, the guys do with the power zones with um, with Hunter Allen, etc. These days, we tend to just use CSS as a sort of relative measure. So it's like your starting point. So for example, on a Wednesday morning, we'll do a session with the guys which um, uh, is specifically tailored towards Ironman athletes. Um, it's anywhere between four and six Ks, um, very, very short rest intervals, very, very long intervals them, uh, themselves, etc. And the idea would be to hold um, a pace of CSS plus about six or eight seconds per 100 meters. So that's how I normally refer to it with the athletes. They know just one simple number. They might know that their threshold pace is, let's say, 140 per 100 meters. Um, on a Wednesday morning, they know that they've got to hold between about 146 and 148. It's just a, it's just a very, very simple way of actually referring to it. So CSS is what you t- the term you use for threshold. CSS, yeah. Sorry, yes, yeah. That just it, let's let's sort of um, use it interchangeably with FTP, if you like. Um, it's yeah. not quite the same, but it's yeah. We're talking about the same sort of thing, really. Mm. You know, as, as, a, as a kind of a swim coach, you know, you obviously recognise in Ironman and, and triathlon that swim is often the shortest leg. Yeah. So, how much do you make sure you get that right amount of load leading into the main part of an Ironman build up? You know, because you make you know swimming's important, but of the gains that you can make, it's obviously not the way you can make the biggest gains. And so, how do you get the balance right of you know good intense swim training and you know swim bike training in the main part of nine man build up? Absolutely. Well, I mean, certainly, um, you know, with, with an athlete working uh, as many as hours as they do on the bike and run, the last thing you want to be doing is absolutely flogging them to death in the pool. Mm. But what I do try and do is actually say to the guys that 
at least one session per week. If they may be swimming three or four sessions per week, I'll say to them, okay, look, this this is going to be a very important key session. So typically for the Ironman guys, it'll be our Wednesday morning session. I, don't, I want them to not have done something super, super intense on the Tuesday night so they can come down, know that they're going to have a hard session on the Wednesday and that, that'll be like their, their big hit out of the week, basically. It's totally geared around their, uh, you know, the sort of speed that they'll be able to hold for a half, uh, sort of half Ironman or full Ironman swim. And I uh, just want them to be uh, ready and prepared for that. In terms of the TSS numbers. I was just having a little think about this over the last few days and um you know, certainly some of the guys in the squad use the performance manager to sort of monitor load over time. We have um, we have 12 squad sessions per week over here in Perth, and um, some of the guys will actually attend, let's say, four or five of those sessions per week. One of them, uh, and we sort of break it down such that on a regular basis, week to week, basically, we have a very similar focus. So Monday morning would be typically a technique session where we do a lot of uh, drills and technique work, etc. That would typically score the guys around about 28 uh, TSS points. Um, for the swim session um, incorporating sort of drills and kicking and pull boy work really throws off the numbers for, for TSS so I like to give the guys just like a sort of um, a relative gauge you know on a Monday morning it's going to be around about 28-30 TSS points mm. given the sort of intensity that we use it is uh, as, Al, uh, as uh, Hunter mentions on his website it, it is quite a hard um, there are factors such as drills and pool boy, etc., which do throw the numbers off a little bit. But anyway, so that's that. That would be the guide for Monday morning technique session on a Tuesday morning. We have another hour session. It's a little bit more focused on technique and actually maintaining that over over longer distances. Uh, that would typically score the guys around about thirty six per hour. But just to uh, just to sort of show you how much that Wednesday morning steps things up, the guys will typically be accumulating in an hour around about 60 to 68 TSS points, um, which for a swimming session is actually quite quite intense. It's not a fast session, but it's just short recoveries, longer intervals. And um, certainly, you know, that session, most of the guys stay in for an hour and a half on that one. So they're going to get, they're going to be approaching 100 TSS points. So but based, compared to some of the other sessions that we're doing a week, it's going to be at least two or three times as um, high on, on, on the load side of things mm. as uh, some of the other sessions they do. Um, on the Friday morning, we do a very specific threshold um, session, uh, so CSS session where the swimmers are working almost uh, just either just slightly above, slightly below that sort of TSS, uh, sorry, the uh, CSS pace. And um, they typically accumulate about 50 to 60 TSS points per hour. And then on the uh, Saturday, the open, we do an open water skills session in the pool. Lots of drafting work, lots of sighting, lots of uh, argy-bargy, if you like. <laughs> it's a really good, uh, really good fun session. And even though it's quite intense, it gets a lot of the guys trying to sit on toes of people um, a little bit faster themselves. The, because of the lower volume and the way the, the equation sort of works, it skews it down to around about 42 to 45 TSS points for the, uh, for the hour. So, you know, those are some of the numbers that I give to our guys and uh, certainly we do have and have used the the Garmin uh, 910 mm -hmm. XT um, swimming well triathlon um, uh, uh, performance computer if you like we've used that on a uh, on a regular basis we also use the Finnis swim sense and uh, both those things would allow the swimmer to actually gauge that a little bit more accurately if they like and like Hunter mentioned last week it's very very important to be as, as if you're going to do this to be as accurate as possible and to be um, as um, complete in your recordings as you possibly can be so those watches will give you if as long as you set them appropriately they'll give you a, a, a TSS CSS score 
I don't, I don't know if that's actually in the firmware just yet, um, yeah. but um, certainly that's something that, that would be a possibility down the line. And certainly if you um, incorporate it into uh, training peaks, then I'm sure you'd be, able to, you'd be able to simply work out those numbers and values. Whether or not you'd be able to look at the watch at the end of the session, whether or not I've updated yeah. the firmware or not, I haven't, haven't actually seen that as yet. But uh, that's certainly a possibility down the line. And, uh, you know, so the watches, as I'm sure you probably know, they just register how many laps you've done, um, what your average pay has been some of them actually look at uh, what your actual um, average stroke rate has been etc and they're just a nice way for swimmers and triathletes to just monitor that over over a course of time which must be nice for you because for the longest time swimming hasn't really hit the feedback device is it no, it hasn't. No, but um, you know, one of the one of the ways that we have actually been working on this on a regular basis for at least the last five or six years is to utilise um, a product. There's actually two products on the market. One called a Wetronome, and one called a Finis, Finis Tempo Trainer. Now, Finis have just recently brought out a new version of that Finis Tempo Trainer. It's very, very good indeed. It, there's actually a function on there which is not meant to be used the way we use it, but it would allow a swimmer. Let's say a swimmer has a um, threshold pace of 140 per 100 you can actually set the beeper just simply beep every 25 seconds per so basically all they have to do is make sure that at each 25 meter marker each time the beep goes uh. so it's very, yeah so it's a very very useful way for the swimmer to be able to monitor their performance just like they'd be looking at the power numbers on the bike now those those um gadgets have been out like say for the last five or six years we've been working with them extensively but We've always been restricted to um, having increments of one full second per 25. So that's quite a big jump over 100 meters, a difference of four seconds. So the swimmer either chooses 140 or he chooses 136 per 100 or 144 per 100. There's no in-between up until now. And the, the new Finnish um, Tempo Trainer Pro has increments of one one-hundredth of a second difference. Oh, okay. Yeah, so you can start to get very, very anal and pedantic about <laughs> numbers that you call. Try but, never do that. No, no, absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> but I suppose on a, uh, from a coaching perspective, though, it's very, very useful because we can then start to set um, goals or pathways for improvement over the course of, let's say, 10 weeks. And that's something we've done recently over in Perth. We, uh, we, we tested 128 athletes for their CSS pace, put them through a 10-week program where we look to try and actually improve their CSS pace by just 0.5% each week yeah. uh, with the view of actually being about 5% better over the course of 10 weeks. And um, the initial findings we just finished that program the initial findings showed us that um the athletes have made an improvement of around about three percent not the five percent that i was hoping for but then again i never i didn't actually know exactly what they were going to be capable of it's a new sort of way of thinking about it if you like but it's it's just like anything it's just about lining out a very very clear pathway we get a lot of swimmers who feel like they're just not you know they've plateaued off not getting any faster this just gives them a very simple incremental goal each week to aim for and uh for me as a coach on the pool deck it's, it's great to see those improvements coming what about, you know, you, you've talked that the, the swimmers are going to have to do a fair amount of guesstimation in terms of um, figuring out what their TSS score is for each particular session. Is that going to vary significantly from person to person? You know, say I go and do a, uh, a 5K set in the pool yep. and somebody else um, goes and does a 5K set in the pool that is of, um, the, the relative effort is about the same, um, but but I'm a much more experienced swimmer. I've got a lot more miles in the bank. Um, do, do they need to factor in a bit of extra load in terms of TSS points if they're a, a weaker swimmer and they have to just fight a bit more and, and doing a 5K session by themselves is, is going to take a bit out of them, whereas you know, for me who's, who's done a lot of swimming, it might you know it's not that big a deal. 
Probably. I mean, in, in theory, it should still be relative to their actual um, threshold pace. So your threshold yeah. pace might be higher than theirs, basically, you know, if you if you are that much more experienced and efficient than, than they are. Um, but I suppose one of the one of the things that we don't really know is, you know, if we're using this number to actually identify their threshold pace, we just don't know how damaging, if you want to use that word, damaging mm-hmm. a swim session is relative to biking and running. So is 100 TSS points the way we're working out at the moment? Is it as damaging as uh, as 100 TSS points on the bike or on the uh, on the run, etc.? So it's it, certainly I, I I would certainly say the the more experienced, more efficient swimmers are probably going to find like you know a session that's 50 TSS points uh, relative to their swim speed. Then yes, they might find it a little bit easier than somebody who is like to use the word sort of thing fighting the water a little bit more, but. Um, you know, I think um, I think a lot of these things is, and again, Hunter talks about this on the website. It's better to know this number than to have no record of it whatsoever. You know, mm-hmm. I did um, I did sports science at um, at university, and there was a period there where I was getting like heavily into all the numbers and using the heart rate monitors and lactate testing and stuff, and it and it was great, but it was very very involved. Really, what uh, what I believe now really is that triathletes and swimmers just need a very simple reference point to work towards, and you know, if the TSS point points are going to be out by let's say five or six over a course of a session um so long as they're consistently out then mm. uh, i imagine that would be that would be all right and not something to get too concerned about there you go everybody you got your tss sorted out but obviously right. one of the big things that um that you guys do at swim smooth is uh you know looking at, at looking at how people swim obviously you know how fast they swim in terms of tss and pace etc is important but but how people swim is important as well yeah. so you guys came up with a bit of a system with six different swim types can you t- explain to us why you did that and and what it's sort of supposed to achieve okay well it's a good it's a good question there and um, I'm full of good so, questions don't worry <laughs> I'm not <laughs> I suppose swim types is something which we've been uh, first sort of recognised and started working on back in 2007 and it's not really um, another way of swimming per se you know we're not trying to reinvent the freestyle stroke moreover we're simply um, simply being able to recognise and categorise six very distinct types of uh, swimmer based on things like their body type build gender swimming history and uh, and even their personality as well which is quite interesting from the coaching perspective how the different swim types actually respond to coaching both in terms of learning styles and how they're likely to behave uh, and respond to you in a, in a coaching session but it's it's really about helping other coaches and, uh, and non-coach swimmers to quickly and easily recognize what issues are likely to be holding them back um, and how to correct these in a simple step-by-step plan. So we find that, you know, obviously the the internet is full of resources and information, etc., about how to actually improve. But a lot of it, a lot of it's going to be obviously very generic. Um, the way I'd actually um, correct a certain swimmer stroke. Let's let's take two of the swim types basically. An Arnie. Um, I'll, I'll go through them, the six swim types, in just a second. But an Arnie is typically the guy or girl who's uh, who's fighting the water. Very very low sinking legs. This swimmer swims very very well with the pool boy between the legs. And um, often puts a wetsuit on, and you know they're five, ten minutes faster than you expect them to be. Um, the way you coach that swimmer to actually improve is going to be very, very different to the way you coach, for example, Kicktastic to improve. A Kicktastic <laughs> is somebody who normally uh, has a very, very good body profile in the water, so their body position is very, very horizontal naturally. They tend to kick quite hard to propel themselves through the water. Uh, but these swimmers often find that with a wetsuit, and particularly with the pool boy between the legs, they actually swim slower relative to the uh, the Arnies and the Arnets within the uh, within the group. So, you know, just as a very simple example, the way those two swimmers need to be coached 
approach needs to be completely different. And you know, we've come across we've come across all sorts of uh, swimmers who've been coached one way or the other. Nine times out of ten, it might well be right for them, but uh, you know, on the um, on quite a few instances, there'll be swimmers who have been taught to swim away, which is just totally inappropriate for their uh, for their swim stroke. Uh, sorry, for their um, for their body type and build, and also their their background in swimming. Uh, we had one classic example of a lady who arguably would have started off life having just brilliantly natural body position in the water. She would have been a fantastic swimmer. She was encouraged to swim sort of downhill. It's a phrase which is um, used quite readily on the internet. And uh, unfortunately, she had actually totally submerged her, um, her head and shoulders at the front end of the stroke, literally by about 18 inches. Oh, really? So, yeah, it was, it's it's almost. I don't like to use this word too often, but it's almost comical when you look at the uh, look at the stroke. And we show it at our clinics, and the swimmers get sort of uh, a bit of a giggle from looking at it. But unfortunately, you know, for for that particular swimmer, it was it was just simply the wrong sort of advice for her. She's already got good natural body position in the water. She didn't need to try and work on that. There are other, other elements that she should have been working on. But equally, you know, for the for the Arnies of the world with the low sinking legs, trying to get the body position up in the water is the single biggest uh, thing holding them back. And uh, and that's really what we try to do with swim types is try to cut through some of that clutter, allow swimmers to go online. We've got a, like a questionnaire online and some video clips so they can try to recognise how they're swimming. We get a lot of coaches telling us that they've that they've been thinking about a very similar sort of system themselves. They've recognised these different swimmers just don't didn't know how to uh, how to go about correcting their strokes necessarily. And um, you know, one of the first questions we always get asked by the coaches who we coach is, um, you know, where do you start with this swimmer? Here's a here's a video clip. Where would I start with this swimmer? I'm just at a bit of a loss. Where do I start? Mm. And the swim type system just helps cut through some of that clutter and help them improve. And um, we've uh, we've recently rewritten the entire swim coaching um, <coughs> module for the British Triathlon Federation which has been a massive, massive amount of work for us to actually undertake. But it's, it's great now that we've got, you know, I think there's over 3,000 coaches in the UK who are actually now utilising the system, following that and, uh, and making use of, um, of some of the tools and drills and sequences, if you like, that we've put together for that. Well, you, you know, one of the big discussions around something in the last kind of 10 years is the idea of the straight arm technique. What's your views on that? Uh, just, just for clarification purposes, Bevan, are you, are you talking specifically about straight arm technique over the top of the water? Or? Yeah, I'm thinking of the gliding across the water. Okay, sure, sure. So the recovery phase over the top of the water, you, do, you often hear a lot of people saying, you know, it's not what happens over the top of the water, it's what happens underneath the water that counts. Mm. And just to sort of uh, clarify that, the straight arm technique, as you see many of the world's best open water swimmers and triathletes utilizing, we actually call that swim type the swinger. Um, they typically have a much shorter stroke, much higher tempo. They've got a very sort of punchy uh, stroke if you like. They typically have a, that sort of straighter arm recovery over the top of the water, which is excellent for giving them arm clearance over the surface of the water in rougher conditions and in close contact with uh, other swimmers. It might not look as orthodox as Ian thought with his high elbow recovery over the top of the water, but the point is that it's more specific to swimming in rougher open water conditions around lots of other swimmers. The other thing which we hear a lot of times uh, from swimmers is that when they pop on the wetsuit, they expect to feel really, really good in the water, etc. And sometimes they find that their shoulders become very, very fatigued very quickly. If that swimmer is swimming with a sort of classic high elbow recovery and the shoulders and the, the wetsuit material is quite tight around the shoulders mm, as it, the yeah you can actually sort of fight it is if the swimmer is actually effectively then fighting against the neoprene and that's actually then causing the fatigue so a slightly more relaxed straighter arm recovery out of the top of the water is something which definitely we promote for um yeah adapting the swimmer's skills to the open water for sure what about you know there's this that's a, i think this is where that often becomes a bit of confusion there's so many different people out there saying there's this way to swim straight arm technique you swim like a fish i mean what how 
in, in terms of what you guys promote, you said you you know you promote a bit of straight arm stuff. Do you just take it on a case by case basis, or do you have any sort of principles that you really stick to and um, and work to pretty closely? No, it's a, it's a very good, very again another great question, very good point. <laughs> John, you're ruining me. <laughs> the, I was very fortunate. Uh, I was back in um, the late nineties. I was actually based at Bath University with the world class uh, triathlon, British triathlon world class program, and uh, training on a daily basis with Simon Lessing, etc., and those the, the top guys in the world at the nice. time. And um, yeah, it was a very very lucky position to be in there. And one of the first athletes I ever started working with as a coach was a guy called Harry Wiltshire. Um, Dirty Harry. Dirty Harry. <laughs> so um, we we still work on a regular basis with Harry. Just caught up with him and the uh, the Brownlee brothers over in um, over in the UK. And what's interesting about Harry's stroke is if you've ever seen it, it seems to be the most unorthodox freestyle stroke you've ever seen. But the point is, it's very, very effective. You know, he's always in the first pack in the ITU World Cup races, uh, right the way up there, etc. And um, what's interesting about his stroke is when I first saw it, just like any sort of new coach would probably think, I looked at it and just thought, ugh, you know, that's horrible. Need to change that. Need mm, to make him like mm. Ian Thorpe. Need to get him longer and smoother, take fewer strokes per lap, etc., etc. But in the process of doing that, rather than actually making him faster, it actually made him slower. Uh-huh. Um, and we're not just talking on a one-off basis, one-off session basis. We're literally talking, you know, we tried it over the, over the period of a couple of months, and it was just making him slower, making him work harder, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. And we do get a lot of swimmers who come to us and just sort of say, "Look, I'm, my coach has been banging on me. I've got to take fewer strokes per lap. It's just not working for me. I'm working very, very hard to actually achieve that." One of our um, one of our best swimmers in our in our squad who coaches for me on a regular basis, she, she was so cheesed off with the fact that the coach had been telling her to take less than 40 strokes per 50 that she wouldn't, and if she couldn't do that, she wouldn't be efficient. But she just simply swapped over and she liked our sort of more inclusive um, way of doing things, if you like. And a few months later, she came, uh, she was first out of the water at the ITU World Long Course Triathlon Championships here in Perth in 2009. And the conditions that she was swimming in there were very, very rough and choppy. And, you know, she might have been taking 53, 54 strokes per 50 meters, relatively speaking, but with a hugely high stroke rate of about 90 strokes per minute and it's something that works for her you know we find just like some cyclists would spin it in a smaller gear higher cadence a la you know lance armstrong probably the best answer, uh, best example of that i suppose so too uh you know some swimmers out there need to swim with that longer smoother freestyle stroke where they pull a little bit harder underneath the water etc and we just find that it's very much the case of horses for courses so what you're trying to tell one swimmer needs to be need to just be uh, mindful and respectful of that. We had a, um, a very interesting case a couple of, uh, it was about a year ago, in fact, a guy came to see me and he said, look, I've been trying this technique for five years now, swimming four or five times per week, just not getting any faster. He says, I can't swim faster than 25 minutes. And I automatically assumed he meant 25 minutes for 1,500 meters, but he actually meant 25 minutes for a kilometer. So okay. he's talking more like sort of two minutes 30 per 100 meters. And, you know, he'd been swimming that way for five years and he just wasn't getting any faster, he said. And just before he started and pushed, off he said i can't get my head around it because i can take 28 strokes per 50 meters and that's better than ian thorpe is what he said to me. <laughs> but, he's, but he's swimming two and a half times slower than ian thorpe basically you know so the guy was unfortunately doing very much like the sort of catch-up style of stroke very very long glide and unfortunately you know 
extension and rotation within the stroke are all very important things and lengthening out the stroke but it, there comes a point whereby the swimmer and we see this time and time again where swimmers have simply taken that simple idea of you know if you make your stroke as long as possible take as few strokes per lap as possible you're suddenly more efficient and that's just it's just not the case you know he was taking 28 strokes per 50 meters granted but two and a half minutes per 100 meters his stroke rate was 33 strokes per minute which is um, you know a third of what harry would uh, would be swimming at in an itu world cup race so, so I suppose then the challenge for you as a coach is, is when you've got a guy like Harry who is unorthodox and, yes. you know, how do you find the things that are going to help them improve? You know, I'm sure that it comes down to coaching experience, but as you say, there's, there's a model that you tried to fit with him and it didn't work, but he right. obviously still wants to improve his swimming, so I imagine that's the real challenge for the coach, isn't it? That's, that's exactly right. And I think the thing is that most swimmers out there, especially if they've been swimming for a few years, you know, they're, they're going to have a pretty good grasp of what, you know, what their stroke should look and feel like. Uh, nine times out of ten, I would never strip a swimmer back down to complete scratch and just start again. We'd actually mm-hmm. look for the strength that they already have. And, you know, one of the strengths of Harry's stroke is that he has got brilliant body position in the water, excellent rotation. You wouldn't believe that from the surface of the pool because it actually looks like he swims quite flat. But when you see him through video analysis, he's still rotating to 45 to 60 degrees you know um which is which is very very beneficial he's got an excellent catch and pull through and just simply very very good rhythm and timing of his stroke it's a very very high tempo and uh but it's it suits him very very well and when we were filming him over in at uh, at leeds um just a couple of weeks ago um yeah we had him swimming a series of uh, of 100 meter intervals and uh and hitting 106 and then stopping and chatting straight to the camera without any you know was not out of breath etc and it it looked it often looks like he's working a lot harder than what he truly is mm. um you know so sometimes the measure of efficiency is quite uh, quite an interesting thing i think if you're just looking at things like trying to reduce how many strokes you take per lap it's not always the full story a question we often get asked, and this is going to vary, again, hugely from person to person. People go to us, how much should I be kicking? I'm doing an Ironman, how much should I be kicking? Do you just take that on a case-by-case basis, or do you have a sort of stock standard answer for people that ask you that question? For sure. And I've got to, I suppose with the kicking side of things, the way I see it, there's, there's two types of swimmers. There are those swimmers who believe that by kicking a lot, they're actually getting a substantial amount of propulsion from the leg kick. Um, recent research, uh, you know, in the last 10 years or so, um, looking at swimmers like Ian Thorpe, has shown that he only used to generate up to 11% of his entire propulsion from his leg kick. The rest came from a good catch and pull through rotation, etc. Research on more sort of age group swimmers and triathletes shows that at, the, at best, we'd be getting around about 5 to 8% benefit of, of propulsion from the leg kick itself. What's, now, the, what's the energy cost in, in comparison to that? Well, I mean, it's, it's, it's I suppose the, I don't know the actual, uh, the actual numbers, I suppose, in terms of how they're like looking at uh, the actual economy savings, etc. But I do know that we, we see those swimmers who do kick very, very ferociously, uh, usually doing that because they're, they're, they're lacking efficiency in other areas of the stroke, whether that be poor body position, so they're using a leg kick to actually bring their legs up in the water, or they're... Um, or they're using it uh, to mat, you know, to sort of uh, improve the way they catch and pull through. So the, the catch and pull through might be quite weak. Um, we do know that those swimmers often report that they often feel like they're very, very fatigued and tired, and um, and just feel like they're constantly out of breath, just purely because they're kicking so hard. Now, on the flip side of that, though. Um, I remember one of the first uh, triathlon um, uh, articles I ever read was this whole, whole idea that as a triathlete, you shouldn't think about kicking at all. Just drag your legs behind you. You've got a wetsuit on. It's going to keep you afloat, etc. Mm-hmm. 
Um, but again, that's that's another that's another extreme really, and we we find a lot of swimmers who don't kick at all or think that they don't need to worry about kicking. They might have things like uh, you know they might be bending a lot from the knees without realising it. They might have very stiff ankles, which might be creating quite a bit of drag. And the classic thing to see is a swimmer crossing over in front of their head and without realizing it then sub- subjecting themselves to a massive scissor kick to actually regain stabilization especially yeah. if that swimmer like in the early 90s swim coaches used to talk about the idea of actually rotating to 90 degrees swimming on the side like a fish etc many of those coaches have actually recounted that now and actually going back to the whole idea of just rotating enough but with the swimmers who tend to over rotate and cross over in front of their head they tend to get a massive scissor leg kick, which is literally like opening up a parachute behind them yeah and uh, and certainly that's not something that's going to be beneficial indeed so at all sorry so um certainly improving the efficiency of the leg kick is very very a very very important thing um just a couple of uh, take home points for your for your listeners i suppose is that one of the simplest things to uh, to actually get a swimmer to do is to simply think about pointing the toes out behind them, turning their toes slightly in so they're a little bit pigeon-toed, and just feel the big toes brushing gently against each other as they as they kick. A lot of swimmers get sort of all het up about you know whether they should be swimming with a two-beat, four-beat, six-beat leg kick, etc. But trying to change somebody's uh, kicking timing is a very, very long, arduous process. It's not that it can't be done. It's something that I personally have done with my stroke in the last few years to, to concentrate on marathon swimming. But um, it's one of those things whereby you don't want to spend too much time focus on the leg kick certainly but uh, if you can just sort of improve some of the efficiency areas i.e. reducing some of that drag getting the swimmer sitting up a little bit higher and easier in the water then that's going to be uh, going to be really beneficial we um Recently, uh, recently met up with uh, Chrissy Wellington over in um, over in the UK, and she was doing a book signing. Bought a book, absolutely fantastic. If you haven't read it, it's, it's a really, really good read. And uh, and in there, you know, one of the world's best uh, swim coaches and somebody who, um, you know, arguably a fantastic triathlon coach as well, Brett Sutton, talks in there about how when he first met Chrissy, she was literally just going it, doing it all from her legs, and uh, you know, he sort of ch- showed her how not to kill the leg kick, but showed her how to actually utilise a better part of the stroke, i.e., improving that catch and pull through, and getting and simply get establishing a better feel for the water. And that was certainly something which helped uh, Chrissy uh, develop and, uh, and improve over time. So, I mean, hats off to, to obviously, to Brett Sutton as a, as a highly experienced coach to, to recognise that and, uh, and work on the individual there as opposed to just sort of using a bog-standard um, way of, of coaching every athlete. Mm, nice. Mm. So obviously if people want to look at the you know your different swim types you've talked about they can go to swimsmooth.com but are there, what other resources have you got on there I know you've got you mentioned a, a new book coming out but if people want to delve into this a bit more you know what have you got on your site that and, or, or or other ways that people can can access um, your way of thinking Sure. Um, so we've got yeah we've got the the main swim uh, swim smooth website which is swimsmooth.com but we also have like a um, uh, a sister site if you like or a, like a, a micro site called swimtypes.com. Going so, there right now. Uh, okay, perfect. <laughs> so swimmers can actually uh, go on there, or triathletes can go on there and, and look at the six different swim types. We have a just to r- quickly run through them. We have an Arnie or female version, which is the Arnett. Um, <laughs> they look like the, the classic sort of swimmer who's maybe just gone into swimming in the last couple of years. They've got a, more of a sporting background, but nothing too much on the swimming side of things. They're fighting the water, crossing over, holding onto the breath, low legs in the water, benefit from using a pool boy and a wetsuit, etc. And you know certainly that counts for quite a lot of swimmers uh, coming into the sport. Uh, we then got a Bambino. A Bambino is almost like a lower-powered version of the Arnie. And uh, these swimmers also have very, normally very low sinking legs in the water, but they don't have the same sort of umph of a... Um 
of the uh, the mm. army, uh, they tend to have an issue with the timing of the front end of the stroke. So when they go to take a breath in, typically their lead arm just collapses in the water with no engagement with the water whatsoever. So constantly, consequently, it looks like they're almost climbing out of the water to try and get a breath in. Uh, these swimmers are often quite nervous and anxious in the open water as well, in particular. Uh, we then have a kicktastic. This is somebody who kicks very, very dominantly, uh, but doesn't ha- necessarily have the, the best catch and pull through. We work over in Perth uh, for the last couple of years with uh, Ironman um, champion Kate Bevelacqua and um, Kate when she first came to us would have definitely been a, a kicktastic always complaining about not swimming well in a wetsuit not swimming well with a pool boy uh, when we looked at her stroke she'd been told to look straight down to the bottom of the pool bury her head those sort of things to try and get her bum and legs up but even as an elite Ironman athlete she had fantastic body position in the water she had latitude in her stroke to be able to look a little bit further forward so that when she put a wetsuit on in particular it didn't mean that her legs were completely kicking up out of the water um, so that helped uh, help Kate go from a 62 minute Ironman swim two years ago down to 53 at uh, uh-huh. Ironman Lanzarote and she's literally now in the top three out of the water at most of the Ironman races um, in the women's um, in the women's category which is a really good good improvement to see you know um, we then have the overglider now I believe about 42% of our uh, sales, that's me sounding a bit overgliderish, overgliders tend to be very analytical people, like their numbers, etc. Uh, and um, 42% of our downloaded uh, training guides for the overglider, uh, sorry, of the uh, of the training guides uh, from, are from uh, people who have identified themselves as overgliders. So these are swimmers who have just literally taken that value of t- trying to take your stroke make your stroke as long as possible they tend to have like a big pause or dead spot at the front end of the stroke um so they might be taking a long stroke but they're actually swimming fairly inefficiently because they've got this pause and delay and it's it's almost like a a constant it's like an acceleration decelerate accelerate Mm. decelerate and um they often look very very smooth in the uh in the pool but especially in the open water a lot of these guys tend to struggle with the estate um sustaining good momentum and rhythm within their stroke and constantly getting pushed around by other swimmers etc so you know these guys have been swimming for quite a while but oftentimes they've just simply gone down like almost like a cul-de-sac for performance they tend to stick at around about 130 to 140 per 100 meters and just can't push through that um, because of this you know big pause at the front end of the stroke uh, we've then got the last two types we've got a swinger who i mentioned before so harry wiltshire is a classic example of a swimmer uh, swinger uh, many of the world's best open water swimmers and triathletes are classic examples we have um, one of my mentors over in perth is a lady called shelly taylor smith seven times world uh, marathon swimming champion she was actually ranked world number one for not just uh, women but men at the, at the time <laughs> and um, shelly is uh, is somebody who would swim 50 meters in around about 53 50 54 strokes but would be stroking at around about 90 strokes per minute now that's an incredibly high stroke rate if you've ever tried to actually swim at that and the point with Shelley is that she would actually maintain that high stroke rate for distances or swims of around about 12 hours so you know when you've got the world's most efficient distance freestyle swimmer swimming with a stroke style like that as unorthodox as it might look in the pool the point is that in the open water it works very very well for her indeed um, and then finally our final uh, swim type is the is the smooth so that's sort of the ian thorpes and the grant hackett's and our um, our animated swimmer mr smooth um um, who's modelled off a guy called John O'Van Hazel over here in Perth who went to the Athens Olympics. That's his sort of typically long, smooth freestyle stroke. But the major difference between him, the, the smoother or her, and the uh, and the overglider is that the smooth doesn't pause at the front end of the stroke. It's still yep. a very, very long, flowing freestyle stroke. And again, to look at the numbers, Ian Thorpe might be taking three or four strokes 
per 50 meters more than my overglider example earlier on, but he'd be swimming with a stroke rate of about 76 strokes per minute. So almost two and a half times faster than the overglider example. Wow. And, uh, and consequently, you know, he's got a long stroke and it's a seemingly very slow stroke, but in reality, it's actually a long, fast stroke. And that's where he generates his, uh, his supreme speed from. Nice. nice. Very yeah. good. So then, so you can buy some packages to teach, you know, you basically assess where you're at and you can buy some training stuff. And, and obviously, if you want to give them to a deeper level, I imagine you've got a coaching team and all that kind of stuff. That's correct, yeah. So we're, we're currently working with the British Triathlon Federation at the moment. We've just released uh, five um, certified swim smooth coaches over in the UK as well. So besides the BTF guys, we have now five certified coaches in the UK. Uh, that doesn't sound like much, but what we're trying to do is rather than just sort of allowing everyone to become a swim smooth coach, we're going through a very stringent um, certification process and ensuring that the quality is there. So if you get in touch with those guys, then you can be assured that you're going to get a great session with them. Um, the, um, the BTF... In, work is interesting because that will eventually start to filter down into many of the uh, the clubs in the UK and we hope to do a similar sort of thing over here in Australia and uh, and certainly over in the US and Canada as um, as well and we've um, we've got our book coming out <laughs> small plug there but we've got a book coming out in uh, I believe it's going to be launched on the 8th of June so um we were approached by the guys who um, published the, uh, the for dummies guides, and uh, this is not a dummies guide to swimming, but uh, <laughs> it's going to be our um, it's going to be our, our, our swim smooth book to improving your efficiency. And it, it doesn't just look at technique; it also looks at how the swimmer then wants to incorporate that into programs, such as you know incorporating training stress score, working on the fitness elements of the of the swim uh, the swim uh, their swim improvement or performance, and also how to actually then adapt their strokes to the uh, to the open water. We're very very keen on that. That I suppose in a in itself that really sort of sums up our philosophy really it's not just about looking about technique and doing drill after drill after drill it's about incorporating that into a sound structured program where the swimmer is going to get fitness benefits and also then be able to make benefit of um, things such as drafting skills etc to really make them a much much more rounded swimmer than they might do through just doing drills alone Mm, nice. that's great yeah, you, look, you guys are doing really great work so if you guys are listening right now and you want to see what those guys are doing you can check them out at swimsmooth.com and uh, you know I'm sure a lot of people listening right now are probably going oh that's me exactly <laughs> I was definitely a nanny when I started exactly because I looked like him too John exactly <laughs> big buffoon of a man that's right those big muscles of mine awesome well thanks for your time Paul and we'll definitely get you back on to talk about some more specific things in the future I hope and um, yeah all the very best and thanks again for Good your time for the book not a problem. It's been great speaking to you guys. Thanks very much. What do you think, John? Oh, outstanding. Great interview. Yeah. Changed my life in terms of our swimming. We haven't actually done it yet. Yeah, people. no, we're doing we haven't listened to it. Okay, is this a question and answer? Uh, Thanks, John. Is there a question you asked? Oh, no, we're up to extreme endurance. Oh, extreme endurance. Okay, you got a lot of notes for that interview. There was some stuff Paul sent through. Oh, okay. Yep. I've read it. Um, so one thing that was on extreme endurance yesterday and clicked on their YouTube channel. I'm doing it now, John. Click on it and there's a couple of I'm Talk listeners on there. Oh, really? So they've basically got a YouTube channel and it's a lot of their um, sponsored athletes uh, on there talking about their experiences with it and and, and the good, you know, how, they, how they've used the product. Um, so we had Matt Malloy on there. Yeah, he's on there right now, product review. Yeah, nice. and so they've, they've got a little YouTube clip with him and he was sort of saying how he used it and I think he mentioned that um, he really obviously felt the the recovery side of things he had less muscle soreness but he still didn't really alter his training massively but he just felt better about things in terms of how Thames and Lewis Do- friend of the Dr. show Thames and Lewis friend of the show and it's got many others on there as well so you get to hear from some of the pros about how they use it just some, some random interviews here and there but uh, 
if you want to see what other people think of extreme endurance as well as us, go to xendurance.com and then they've got a YouTube channel or you can just search for it under um, when you're well, on YouTube. that's the thing, isn't it? It's, it's the thing is that we get so much feedback because when we first took it on, people were like, oh, I'm not sure, mm-hmm. supplements and... But you know what? The, the feedback from you guys has just been so positive and so, you know. And one thing that I really like about our sponsors is we have, seem to have really good customer service feedback. Yeah, definitely. I've got yeah. a guy that I coach. He's um, he's just got a stress fracture. Oh, no. And, uh, but he wrote an email to, to Extreme Endurance and uh, and they just came straight back to him and said, you know, try this, this, and this and, uh, and see how it goes, you know. Um, and he's a medical professional, so he just it's just customer service is important that's oh, what so these important. days that's what you've got to set yourself apart from the crowd customer service is nice. an easy way to do it that's an easy check, well yes check it out xendurance.com okay guys so we're going to Kona and um, we've bought our tickets on bloody Jetstar and we need to change it and up, upgrade to uh, can't believe we're going on Jetstar uh, for those who don't know yeah. it's, it's kind of like Ryanair really isn't it it's a, it's a slight step above Ryanair really but like, a, like a small yeah. like it's a basically budget, budget flying I don't mind budget flying if you're going to Australia. Three hours are good. But, like, because we're flying to Sydney, then so it's like a 12 hour flight. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I'm hearing you and I and I feel your pain. Well, you but could have told me it was Jetstar. We booked on Qantas. No choice. There, is no, there was no Qantas flights there. It was basically Jetstar or, or the highway. John. Why don't we right? We'll swim there. I still haven't done my bloody Kona flight. I need to do that. I'll put them on to do list. Okay, anyway. So. To help us get there. To help us get there on Jetstar. <laughs> and we know people have been donating the show which we absolutely appreciate because it's a bit, it's a big thing for oh, us to go over to Kona you know we only um, do it because you guys pay for us to get there like, yeah. we couldn't afford to do it ourselves and so the fact that you guys pay for us to get there is, is you know when, when we're there doing all the work and, and we get so much feedback saying how much everyone loves what we do it's these people who can really pat themselves on the back and say well I'm a big part of the reason this content is out there that's right and I've got to give you a slap on the bottom um, because <laughs> <laughs> we don't normally talk about that on the show oh, sorry um, <laughs> Um, but I think you might have forgotten to put some of the last uh, block I of did, I can't remember on. what their names are. Okay, well, well, you might have to go back and listen to that show. Yeah, I've, I've got when, some of them. Can you remember when we did it? Yeah, I'll, I'll look it up on Gmail. Okay, let me know. Um, right, my first one is Paul. He's got an option of two here. Paul, the missing link. His surname is Link. That's his option one. Or option two is Paul Chainsaw Link. I like Chainsaw. Mm. We don't give him the option. He's going Chainsaw. Chainsaw. Paul Chainsaw Link. Yep, nice. Uh, Thomas Bugsy Malone. Nice. A little bit obvious, but still works. Yes, yes I'll give it to you. Um, a couple of uh, previous contributors were Bevan. Uh, no, not Bevan. Um, Bevan to do. <laughs> Bevan to do. <laughs> Colin the Convict Belosky. Yep. And then uh, Mike Hewison, the Farburn Fox. Farburn Fox, I should say. Timothy Rocky McGrath. Yep. Dave Braveheart Chambers, he loves it too. Yes, and uh, this one, I think he might have changed, or he might have changed slightly. Oh. Michael Mazdenjian, <laughs> Red Gold. Change it. We did. We did. I can't remember what we changed it to. to. And then Stuart, Age of Danger, Milne. That was a good one. Nice. Okay, so then I got Anthony Rippermonti. Who you coerced into don- donating cause yes, you because you like his he Yes, because he Yep, that's right. So I, I don't know where I went down this line, but I thought of Rowdy, Rowdy, Rowdy Piper. Remember the wrestler Rowdy Roddy Piper? I didn't know. I didn't remember that one. That's okay. Well, he always had a tissue of hot rod on it. It was oh. the Scottish guy always wore the. You must have been watching a slightly different. No, era I think I everyone was. listening who was into the WWF will know Rowdy Roddy Piper. Okay. I think you've just went, you've just lost two points. Okay, sorry. Hot rod. So Anthony Hot Rod Rivermonte. Nice. It's a goodie. Okay. You can wear the t-shirt if you want to, Anthony. Nice. You're going to do another one. Oh, the next one, am I? Am I? 
Oh, wait, so you just did yourself two and you gave me the rest. I did two, you did no, three. You, you did Bruce. Oh, did I not? Did Bruce? Okay, sorry. Yeah. Bruce. Yeah. Tomahawk. Tomlinson. Nice, nice. I like what you've done there. Tom nice. Tom. Yes, yes. Yes, okay. Stuart Moore. Stuart, the answer, Moore. Nice. <laughs> yeah. I could have gone, give me. Give me, give me, give me, uh, give me. But then it could be taken in the wrong context. Okay. Yeah. Yep. And then lastly, I had uh, Brittina, Brittina. Brianna. Brianna, that one too. That's <laughs> the last one then. Whittenby. Whitteven. Whitteven. The Golden Jet. I think she might have even, when she done it, I think she might have even... Given us a nickname? Uh, given us the, the breakdown of how to pronounce her name. Oh, good. Well, I think so I could right. you put that there for me? So what was it again? I missed it, sorry. The Golden Jet. The Golden Jet. Yeah, I don't know if she's blonde or not, but it just... Faster than a speeding bullet. That's right, she's the Golden Jet. So if you want to donate to the show, you're going to help us get to Kona, and this year's obviously a big year. We're going to get, we've, got, we've already arranged three interviews with Lance. Yeah. Um, <laughs> and we need to do that, that two million per interview to yep. pay them. Yeah, that's right. Well, well, that's the thing. You guys have donated that much that we can get two million to get Lance on. So, you know what we should... Oh, I'd love to get Lance on. If anyone, yeah, surely with our audience, someone has a connection. Come out of dream world, Bevan. I know, but just, you know, if you can make it work, just make it work. Make it work. We can I bring him in time. Cheryl. Not that I don't know what their relationship is these days. Who's Cheryl? Cheryl Crow. Oh, because you've been in the car with Cheryl, haven't you? Yeah. She probably remembers you really well. Bart Nags. Who was oh, Bart? No, he was the... He the guy was, the book we read? Yeah. Oh. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, why don't you ring Bart? Okay. Give him a call. Say, look, John Newsom. Because, oh, the Iron Talk guy. Yeah, the legend of triathlon. <laughs> Okay, uh, so it's donate show. Go to our website, www.iamtalk.me, and there's a little donate, get us the Kona button there. Click on that. It goes to PayPal. You put some money in, and then we're going to get to Kona. John, we've got a literally about a minute. Okay, athlinks.com. Um, one thing that, that I was <laughs> I you thinking about was uh, often you go to races, and you're racing against people, and you forget. You know, you think, who was that guy that finished just in front yes, of me? Or who was that guy nice. that just That's passed angle, me? John, like and angle. they just smoked me, or I just smoked them. And you can go to... You can John, go into, you smoked them. Yeah, yeah. You go into your athletics results, and you'll be able to see, who, firstly, probably estimate who it was, and then secondly, because Athletics records all their results, you'll be able to click on them and see where else you raced them. And then you'll be able to, ah, that's who I remember. He smoked me by 15 minutes at my C, first race of the season. But when it came to the, f- the big Monty, the full, the full McCoy, then I smoked him on race day. Nice. So use Athletics. You like doing as, it, don't you? Oh, yeah. yeah. Use, use Athletics. You always as your let people beat you in training, but then race day, what happened? My phone's buzzing. Oh, you get a really weird look then. So yeah, so athlinks.com, it's a good way just to see who you're racing, what they're doing. If you've beaten them, just maybe just say, hey, you should go on Athlinks so you can prove that you've beaten them. Exactly. So use Athlinks as a resource. Obviously, we talk about a lot about going on there and claiming results, but also use it for checking out your fellow competitors and your friends and laying a bit of smackdown talk. Okay, athlinks.com. Okay, John, a sponsor there? Athlinks.com. Um, tell, tell the people when you're beating, you're beating them. Coffees of Hawaii. Um, what was my fact? Yeah, 18 cents of coffee why would you pay that yes. get it at home get it at home and extreme endurance um, Tamsin Dr. Tamsin thinks it's good if there's a doctor beside it it must, it be, must good. be good okay John quick goss because we literally well, might run out of battery I'm lying We've on the beach in Kaiteri as you guys listen and I'll be back next week did you have a dream uh, I had a dream I, we, we, the dream was we swam to Kona because we got so infuriated by having to fly Jetstar Jetstar's fine it's just a budget airline we don't want to fly that far on budget in New Zealand, be fair, sponsor us, and we can have a nice, comfortable flight. In New Zealand, so much nicer. At least nowadays you've got laptops. Yeah. You take your own movies. Yeah. Because you've got to buy the entertainment unit on Jetstar. Yeah. And you've got to buy your food. Yeah. 
And we're you not going to be able to buy food because what's going to happen is we're flying to Sydney first, so you buy your food to Christchurch, Sydney, but then you have to buy airport food. John, I'm not happy. You could have told me. I would have said no. <laughs> There's no other way. We could have gone I, British I, Airways. Are they still around? I did spend a lot of time in. researching. Uh, the, yeah. Which way do we go? Do we go there on Jetstar or back on Jetstar? Well, we'll just check a ticket. <laughs> He's cut up. People here is cut oh. up. Bajo is really Bajo. Breaks my heart. Okay, what else? Um, anything else? Have you trained your cat yet? But I came in last week and I told you to train your bloody cat and to make it get in, pull into line. Have you got it sorted? Train it to do what? Just but not jump all over you. It's jumping all over the furniture. You, you nice chairs here. They're going to be history. You now, should we, John? Did I tell you that. Yeah, well, there's going to be history. Get it under. You need to take it to um, like an epic camp, a, a cat's epic camp, and get it under control. What the cat? Yeah. Eight hours on the bike? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> get under control. Bit of discipline. How do you discipline a cat? No water gun. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. seriously, you do. Yeah. What's really funny, so do here's, that funny, and I'm sure here's a funny story. So we were going, we've got the cat, and we're, we've had it for about, it must be a month now. So we've, we've had it for a while now, and so letting it outside slowly. Mm-hmm. But it keeps climbing the tree, and we didn't know you're not meant to, well, we didn't know you're not meant to let it, but um, we didn't know how to stop it. And apparently water pistols, so don't go to the tree. Mm-hmm. But a few days ago, Joe lets the cat outside and literally it's Joe's, it's Joe's bud so I kind of let the cat in for two minutes so I go back inside play my piano get, yeah. do some work and Joe's sitting under the tree and I hear her go come on in come on in come on in and literally for like half an hour the cat's in the tree <laughs> so, so eventually I thought I better go help so so I go out there and the cat's in the tree and she's kind of caught and she's a little bit afraid of coming down mm-hmm. and Joe's going come on in come on in so I thought well I'll help out so what I did is you I, the water pistol and you smoked no, it no, <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 I climbed the tree. So I kind of grabbed the branch with one arm, kind of like a monkey, because I needed the other arm to grab. So I said, Joe, yeah. babe, can you get under me? And I'll sit on your shoulders. And I'm kind of, you know, <clears throat> you know holding on for dear life. Joe's got a pretty small frame to support your weight. Yeah, Joe's not the biggest kid in the world. <laughs> and so so I'm holding on. Her, oh, yeah, and I grab the cat, and the cat scratches the crap out of me because she's a bit scared and she wants to stay on the tree. Scratches the crap out of me. Ah! And I grab the cat, pass it to Joe. I'm leaning on Joe. What does she do? She got the cat walks away, so I'm dangling from the tree, and the tree's not very stable. Baby, luckily she came back and saved me. But at that moment, in my moment of death, I know who Joe loves the most. She deserved, yeah. She deserved me poorly. So oh. I know, I know, I know my place in the house now, John. Mm, exactly. Spare bedroom time coming up. Exactly. Anyway, battery's about to run out. Yep, let's do it. Iron Russ. I mean, don't train hard. Train smart. Kia kaha.